church. You get out of the pastor yelling at you and stepping on your toes. So, Miss, Miss Roberta's going to step on your toes instead. Let's get it. All right. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, if you'll turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 7, we're going to pick up where we left off last week, Ecclesiastes chapter 7. We went through the first 14 verses of Ecclesiastes 7 last week, and we reviewed what our your Bible might say at the beginning, wise sayings. And if you were just to parachute into Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and see that headline and then read them, you'd be at a, at a loss as to how they could be so wise because Solomon is, a, is using the book of Ecclesiastes in a, in a unique way. He's arguing from a critic's standpoint. He's arguing from the negative. He's using hyperbole and sarcasm and uh, irony to demonstrate the folly, the foolishness of trying to live and find meaning and purpose in this world uh, in life, laboring just under the sun without considering God and what he's doing. We've all come to the conclusion as we've been going through this that we, like Solomon, understand the fact, I would hope and pray that you do today, that without God and seeking his purposes and having relationship with him, ultimately with him, a saving relationship, an adoption into his family, utterly life is truly meaningless and foolishness. And it doesn't just end there. There's an eternal damnation that awaits those who have not encountered um, God in, in his way, his means of salvation through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we explored nihilism last week, how uh, if you're left to um, an understanding of this world is just by accident and there's truly no meaning and purpose and ultimately your life and your person, there's no meaning and purpose in that and where that takes us to is a society who not only rejects God but lives in this, with this assumption that there is truly no meaning and purpose and human beings have no value. And although Solomon wrote this uh, 10th century B.C., more than likely, we find ourselves in 2021 in a society that's increasingly becoming this way. Places of education are teaching the fact that we're all here by chance and there is no meaning and purpose. And Solomon is using, um, using that perspective that well, that's where mankind goes if they don't have God and they don't fear God and, and understand what God is doing. All throughout human history, we see humanity going in that direction, right? The book of Judges. They find the, God's people doing what was right in their, according to their own eyes because they've rejected God and living for themselves. And though, so it's, the, it's although written so long ago, we can find immense application for us today in 2021 and understanding that this is, the, this is the reality that we live in and we have the opportunity to be the ambassadors of Jesus Christ to give this world the good news that God is at work and he is saving a people through the gospel. And there is meaning and purpose found that we're each individually the image bearers of God. And there is meaning and purpose found in him. And that's where we're called to. We can think back about yesteryear and the glory days. But the reality is we're here, we're at, we're at. And God has called us as his church to be his ambassadors, to stand for his good and to stand for what is what he has determined to reveal to us as his his means to find meaning and purpose in this world. 
So all that to say, I wanted to get that out of the way so we can have a context and understanding where Solomon's taking us. He's, he's writing from the critic's perspective, and so he's kind of has a critical spirit about him. And he, he's, he, he, he's given us hints to the fact that he knows that there's a God, right? We know Solomon is the king of, the, of, people and, uh, of God's people. And, and so he's, he's struggling with the fact that he has this wisdom and he knows what, who God is and who God has revealed himself to be, but that he looks around in the creation and he sees evil and wickedness and darkness. And he's struggling with the fact that how can a good God allow these things to happen? And if we're honest, we sometimes find ourselves thinking that, right? How can a good God allow these things to happen? And so he's, he's bitter, and he, he's, he's using this letter to illustrate the struggle that he's having with those things. And uh, ultimately, he says, he concluded already in Ecclesiastes 1, life is futility, it's futile, it's vain. Labor under the sun, if that's all that we have is labor under the sun, and then we die and turn into nothing, then it is truly foolishness. It's vain. It's just the meaning and purpose is like trying to grab a soap bubble, you know? It just pops and disappears. And he's being honest with that. And so he, he's, he's, he's a, as a sage, he's in, the, in Ecclesiastes 7, he, you got to picture him as the preacher who's standing as the wise sage to, and he's probably teaching to a, a room full of men or, you know, he's writing to a room full of men and he's trying to impart wisdom to them in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. And we went through the first 14, but then we're going to pick up here in verse 15. And he says, in my futility, in my futile life, right, he's given us perspective that God is not part of this and what God is doing. It's about life under the sun. In my futile or vain or foolish life, I have seen everything. So he's telling these people, he's telling us in his word, uh, and those who read this book, he's telling them, I've observed everything, and and this is another struggle he's having. Someone righteous perishes in spite of his righteousness, and someone wicked lives long in spite of his evil. Right? He's like, that's futile, That's, that's frustrating to me. The righteous people are perishing, the ones that are wicked are the ones that are are. And um, prospering and having a long life, even in spite of the fact that they're living in for evil and living wickedly. And so his wisdom, his his advice to his readers, again, for coming from the critical stand- standpoint, arguing from the negative, don't be excessively righteous and don't be overly wise. Why should you destroy yourself? And so again, we go, huh? What do you mean? How... What do you mean not be excessively righteous? I thought that, that was the right thing to do. That's, that's traditional wisdom is to be righteous, to live righteously, right? And he's telling us not to. And don't be overly wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Because he's saying, look, I'm having a disconnect between traditional wisdom and what I see with my own eyes. I'm struggling with this fact that God has communicated into to uh, reveal to us through uh, his inspiration and recording in his book that traditional wisdom says if you live righteously you will you will you're supposed to increase and have long life and prosperity you're supposed to prosper but yet we see the exact opposite and ultimately what I'm trying to boil it down to the fact is uh, from the critical standpoint from arguing from the negative he's saying look just because you live righteously and wise doesn't mean you're going to be delivered from trial and persecution and trouble. 
in a fallen and dark world. If we lived in a perfect world without sin, without evil, without darkness, then that would be applicable. And we could take those types of wise sayings, you know, to the bank. We can understand. If we live for God, we live righteously. He will bless us and increase us and prosper us. But in reality, in this fallen world, that's not always the case. And so he's saying don't live excessively or don't live with the understanding of, okay, if I just keep doing good and doing right, don't bank all your, your understanding or your, your purpose or your, your hope on living righteously, checking your boxes, being righteous for God, because it doesn't always necessarily mean you're going to have a prosperous life in a fallen world. He goes on to give us the, so that's one extreme, right? Don't, don't live excessively righteous in the hope that, that God will prosper you. Don't, ultimately, what he's saying is don't count on your self-righteousness as a means to allow God to bless you. And then his next piece of advice in verse 17 is the other extreme. Don't be exceedingly wicked and don't be foolish. Why should you die before your time? So, On one sense, don't count on your righteousness as a means to expect God to to bless you and don't live wickedly and don't go to the other end and fall off the ditch. That side of, of, you know, riding a horse takes balance. So I hear, I've never been very successful at it. But if you lean, one thing I do know, if you lean too far to the left or the right, you're going to fall off. And the horse might help you if he doesn't like you. That's another thing I've learned. Anyway, rabbit trail. Anyway, so don't, th- th- this walk that we have in this life in a fallen and broken world needs to have balance in it, right? Verse 16 speaks to the person who says, I'm doing all these things for God, and I've been there. I was saved by the grace of God. The gospel was preached. The Holy Spirit convicted me of my need for, for Jesus and to trust in him, and so I got saved. But then, man, I put on my self-righteous overalls and went to work and began to show Jesus just how good of a Christian I can be and how all these other Christians have been following Jesus all so many more years than me, you know, aren't doing it right. And I was walking in my self-righteousness and God had to humble me <laughs> because I was accounting on me and myself and not clinging to the righteousness given to me by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so to be truly wise is to walk in balance and understanding that although it is wise to walk righteously, and traditional wisdom says that it doesn't necessarily mean in a fallen and broken world you're going to be, you're going to prosper and be blessed. And it's important that we discuss that because there's a whole thing of Christianity today, this prosperity gospel that says if you do these things for God, if you, if you live for God, if you just by faith trust and believe, then God's going to prosper your bank account. You just have to believe. You just have to have enough faith. And so people will take their very last bit of savings and they'll send it to the preacher on the TV in their face seat and then they'll be without their money and hoping and expecting because this preacher told them that God's going to bless them and prosper them for doing so. And then they don't. Because they're taking God's word and abusing it for their own increase and abusing God's people in that. But we are children of the word and we understand that it is good to live wise and righteously, but it doesn't necessarily mean in this world you're going to prosper. And we all can testify to that, right? At the same time, we don't just eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die because we also know, right, we have an opportunity in the New Testament context living for God, so I just want to try to bring an application to us. 
that we have an opportunity to live for Jesus and for his glory and pursue him and, and, dim, and reflect his goodness and his righteousness to those around us that they can see the goodness of God found in the salvation that is, a, that is found in Jesus Christ alone. And we can do that as we seek him in the fear of God, live under the fear of God, seeking to live for God and his purposes, walking in humility, understanding that it is our God, our Lord and Savior, who should be enthroned upon our heart and not ourselves, not our heart idols, but him. So it's a balance to be truly wise in a fallen and broken world is to understand that life is a balance, avoiding the extremes. Right, traditional wisdom, these are the verses that these prosperity preachers will abuse. Humility, the fear of the Lord, results in wealth, honor, and life. So if you're humble and you fear the Lord, the result of traditionalism says brings you wealth, honor, and life. And they'll take that and they'll, they'll say, see, the Lord wants to prosper you. Well, it's good to live in humility, but it doesn't necessarily mean that. And we can... We can look around this world and understand. There are thorns and snares, traditional wisdom says, uh, on the way of the crooked. The one who guards himself stays far from them. But the, the critic, the, the preacher in Ecclesiastes says, well, it's good to live wise, but don't be banking on just being living righteously. Because in the fallen world, often the righteous are the ones being persecuted. As human history de- has demonstrated to us. A perfect example of this, and this is a, getting to the understanding of wisdom literature. Wisdom literature is a genre found in the Bible, right? These are ancient sayings, short, pithy sayings that are designed from someone who is wise to give to younger people or less mature people in the hopes that they would be, glean the wisdom from these short sayings so that they would not have to come across and stumble upon the same uh, issues and problems that the, the person that is wise is telling them, right? So they're trying to impart wisdom to a younger and more immature people. And so it's for wisdom literatures for living for today. How do we live our life? How are we to do that, right? And traditional wisdom says that. Proverbs 22 says, live righteously and you'll be blessed. Live wickedly and it's, a, it's the, the crooked way. Proverbs 22.6, start a youth out. Again, traditional wisdom. Start a youth out on his way. Your, your translation might say, train up a child in the way he should go. This is not a promise. This is not didactic teaching. This is not God saying, if you do this, I will do this. Right? This is a wise saying. Saying, train up your children wisely. And most times, when they grow old, they will not depart from it. So it could be up raising them up in the Lord or raising them up to have a good work ethic, right? If you can figure that one out, how do you teach your kids a work ethic, let me know. So that's a wise saying for a parent. We're charged to raise them up, train them up in the way they should go. But it doesn't necessarily mean that when they're old, they're going to follow it. They have a choice to choose wisdom or foolishness. And I don't know how many parents I've encountered who live with a guilt because their parents have, or their children have departed from uh, walking with God after they've grown old. And they've saying, well, according to this verse, I trained them up. I must have done it wrong. And so they're living with the guilt of the choice of their children. And that's not what this verse is saying. This is a wise saying, saying, this is what are you to do as a child. But ultimately we know that it's the child, when they grow to, they have come to their own right will and volition, they're going to choose 
wisdom that you've taught them, or they can reject it. But that's their choice. As much as we want to bang our Bibles over their, their head, right, and say, it's obviously not going through that way, so... <laughs> Wisdom genre, wisdom literature is that, is to impart wisdom, how we're to teach our children, how, to, how we're to live, but it doesn't guarantee or necessitate a guarantee that blessing will come or your children will be with the Lord. So release that guilt from yourself. If that's what you've, have you seen that verse? I've seen, I've heard many people go, well, hey, the Lord says if I train up my child in the way it should go, they won't depart from it. Well, guess what? There's a lot of brokenhearted parents out there. Well, that's not the case because they've misunderstood wisdom genre and wisdom literature. All right, going on. To be wise is to be balanced and fear the God, ultimately. Fear God, that's not the God, but fear God. That's ultimately what Solomon is getting this to, right? He keeps pointing us, giving us this, this little nugget of grain of hope that although he's concluding life as vanity and foolishness, it's really find, finding meaning and purpose is founding in fearing God and walking with him and his purpose. It is good that you grasp the one, that is, not be too dependent on your righteousness for God's blessing, and do not let the other slip from your hand, that is, be foolish, not to be foolish, right? It's good that you grasp the one and do not let the other slip, so it's a balance, is what he's saying. For the one who fears God will end up with both of them. So keep your eyes on God, church. All right, we're done. No, just kidding. Can't let you off that easy, Haley. I'm kidding, teasing. <laughs> uh, all right. So I just, as we've been discussing the last few weeks about, <laughs> sorry to embarrass you. That was rude. Sierra's not here, so I had to pick on someone. So the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about drawing near to God, fearing God, um, walking in humility with God, learning to labor into his rest. So these are all things that we know of that are good. But how do we do it? So maybe it's not you're looking around and seeing the, the wicked prosper. Maybe it's you're seeing your, I don't know, maybe you're seeing your country just change just before your eyes in a matter, you know, right? Your hearts are breaking. What are, how, how do we draw near to God? How do, we, how do we labor to enter into his rest? Whatever it is that you're struggling with, right? I just want to take some time this morning and try to make this an application because I can stand up here and pontificate you know, draw near to God, rest in the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But how does it look in reality, right? How, what are the spiritual disciplines to, to make that happen? And I wish I could say I'm an expert at it, but I'm not. I'm learning along with you. But the Psalms just bring, bring a good example for us. This Psalm of Asaph in Psalm 73, we're going to be here quite a long time. So if you want to turn there, that would be uh, through the entire Psalm, actually. That would be a good place to turn. And this, this Asaph is a, mu- a musical director for King David. And he's looking around, and he's seeing the wicked prosper. And he knows traditional wisdom says that they're not supposed to be prospering, that the righteous are supposed to be prospering. But he's not seeing that with his eyes. He's kind of like Solomon in Ecclesiastes going, traditional wisdom's not holding up. And so he writes this psalm, which is a song, but it's a prayer of lament. It's a song of lament. And lament, we've talked about this before, and this is how we can draw application to us. You don't have to suffer with those things that your heart is breaking over. God desires for you to go to Him. A lament is to not only bring your complaints to God and bring your burdens to God, but it's to ask God to deliver you from them. 
He's a supernatural God. He's transcended above his creation. And as in the New Testament context, his children, he desires to help us in our time of need. Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. What, how do we make that a reality in our life? Well, the first thing we need to do is understand that he wants us to bring his burdens to him. That means we have to take time away from the television and away from our t- daily task and actually get alone with God. Jesus is the perfect example of that, is he not? In his earthly ministry, changing, healing people, drawing great crowds, but he was always taking time out to get alone with his Father. So the first thing that we need to do to practically bring this into our lives is to make sure you take the time to get alone with God. You and God, and then be honest with him. I'm frustrated with this, God. The wicked are prospering. And this is what he says in Psalm 73. God is indeed good to Israel, to the pure in heart. So he, he's recognizing who God has revealed himself to be. But as for me, I'm struggling. That's not what he says. That's my little comment on it, right? But as for me, my feet almost slipped. My, my, I'm sorry, I'm not going on here. But as for me, my feet almost slipped. My steps nearly went astray. For I envied the arrogant. I was jealous over the arrogant people who, and the, the wicked people who I saw prospering. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have an easy time until they die, and their bodies are well fed. They are not in trouble like others. They are not afflicted like most people. Therefore, pride is their necklace, and violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge out from their fatness. The imaginations of their hearts run wild. All this ancient literature, right, we can read and just say, man, it's just like today. They arrogantly, arrogantly threaten oppression. They, are, they set their mouths against heaven and their tongues strut across the earth. Therefore, his people turn to them and drink in their over flowing words therefore his people turn to them and drink that's saying the the wicked are even so prosperous that the god's people are being affected by them they're turning to the world instead of to god he's frustrated with that the wicked say how can god know does the most high know everything right first timothy says in the last days there will be scoffers saying where is your king Where is your God now? How can God know? Does the Most High know everything, the wicked say? Look at them, the wicked. They are always at ease and they increase their wealth. Did I purify my heart and wash my hands in innocence for nothing? So he's he's saying, this is what I'm seeing. And he's being honest to God. Did I devote myself, right? That's what he's saying there in verse 13. Did I purify my heart? And speaking of the Old Testament context, the temple washings, the washing my hands in innocence, the, the cleansing that comes. In the, so he's just pointing to the fact that he's trying to align himself with God and what God has directed him to do. And he's like, did I do it for nothing? Is my faith in you in vain? Because tr- wisdom says that the righteous are supposed to be prospering, but yet I see the exact opposite. And he's just being honest with God. He tells his, tells his God, for I am afflicted all day long and punished every morning. 
you don't have to raise your hand, but I'm sure all of us can attest that we've had those moments in life, right? I just don't understand. This is not equating to what traditional wisdom says, God. I'm being afflicted all day long. I'm being punished every morning. But look what the psalmist does, and he's teaching us, right? God has allowed this to be in his word to teach us, to model to us for what we are to do. We first go to God, be, spend some time alone with him, be honest with him, cry out to him. The prayer of lament is to be honest and say, this is what I'm seeing. I don't understand. But then you're asking God to rescue you from it. Right? He was this way until... Uh, he, well, he goes on in verse 15, if I decided to see the, I, I have decided to say these things, that if I decided to say these things aloud, I would betray your people. So he's also being honest with the fact that if I'm open and honest with real, how I'm truly feeling and my crisis of faith right now, right, it might cause other people to stumble, other people of your, you know, other people of God to stumble. All right, and this, that's a temptation for us is to keep it inside because we don't want everybody to know this crisis of faith we're doing, right? And we don't want other people to stumble, so we're just suffering by ourselves. Alone, feeling like we're alone. But if you're in Christ this morning, you're not alone. Jesus is there. His promise is that he would never leave us nor forsake us. He's, God has given us, if you're in Christ this morning, the the gift of the Holy Spirit who indwells the heart of the believer. He is inside of you, and he desires to comfort you. The paraclete, the Holy Spirit, is a comforter. But our temptation and our flesh and our pride tempt us to handle it by ourselves and just suffer in silence. Cry out to God. Get alone with him. Lament to him. And this is what the psalmist does. And this is where we can bring application of drawing near to God, laboring to enter into his rest, walking in the fear of God, walking in humility with God. This is what it looks like. Instead of saying, I got this, God, I don't have this. (laughs) I'm going to take some time and just focus on you. And this is what the psalmist says. And when I tried to understand all this, it seemed hopeless. He said, I tried to understand it, wrestle with it, and all I did was lose hope. Until I entered God's sanctuary. Amen? Then I understood their destiny. It wasn't until the psalmist said, okay, I got to get my eyes off what's going on in this world and get my eyes on the Lord. And he drew near to him. He drew, he came until I entered God's sanctuary. So in the Old Testament context, that would be the temple. But in the New Testament context, we know because we've had a series on it, right? And what the word says is in the New Testament context, God's people are the temple of God. That Jesus said there was coming a time and the time is now where God's people will worship him not at a place or a temple built with hands, but will worship him in spirit and in truth because we are now the temple of God. We just have to take time allow him to minister to us not be so busy and distracted draw near to God take time out be alone with him and just pray out to him pray back a psalm to him whatever you need to do to settle your heart to get your focus off of the problems and the iniquities of this world and put your spiritual eyes on what God is doing in his purposes. 
He goes, I went to God's sanctuary. I began to focus not on what they were doing and their constantly, but, but I began to focus on what God, and then I understood their destiny, and then he under, had an understanding. Look, whatever temporary prosperity that is happening to the wicked is not their eternal reality. I was hopeless until I put my God, I entered God's sanctuary. Then I understood their destiny. Indeed, you put them in slippery, slippery places, he says to God. You make them fall into ruin. How suddenly they become a desolation, right? Human history is full of pagan civilizations that just are now desolate. They come to an end, swept away by terrors. Like one washing, waking from a dream, Lord, when arising, you will despise their image. And when I became embittered and my innermost being was wounded, right? He got overwhelmed with what he was seeing and so he became bitter, even towards God. And my innermost being, my soul was broken, my heart was broken, was wounded. I was stupid and didn't understand all that. I got my eyes off of you, Lord. I was trying to figure things out in my own wisdom and my own ways of thinking. I was an unthinking animal towards you. But now he's gotten it right. Yet, I'm always with you. In the New Testament context, he's always with us. You hold my right hand, he says. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will take me up in glory. Right? The New Testament context, we understand how that works. This world, this what's going on here is not the end all be all. It's the eternal life that is to come that we are placing our hope towards and faith in that Jesus has made a way for us, that our God has made a way for us to be rescued and delivered from what we truly deserve and spend an eternity where God will be our God and he will dwell amongst his people and there will be no sickness, no more sorrow, no more tears, no more suffering, no more sin, thank God. <laughs> no more wickedness. That is our hope and he He's, see how he's, he's changing? He's, he's bitter, he's angry, he's seeing the wicked prosper, but then he gets his eyes on God and he's like, no, wait, it's not about this. You guide me with your counsel and afterward you will take me up in glory. Who do I have in heaven but you, he says. Can you say that this morning? Have you encountered Jesus in a saving way? Who do I, in heaven, who do I have in heaven but you? The creator God is through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you believe, place your faith and trust in his accomplished vicarious sacrificial work on the cross, the scriptures declare that God has now made you born again and has pulled you out of your sin and adopted you into the family of God. And we can say, not only creator God, holy, 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 but we can also say, according to the New Testament scriptures, Abba, Father. Jesus says, I consider you a friend because of what, not of ourselves, our own self-righteousness, because of what Christ has done for us. That's where we are to labor to enter into the rest that he's provided for us as a heavenly father, as a protectant that has not delivered us from our trials and persecutions, but has promised to walk through those trials and persecutions with us for his glory. 
And he says, I desire nothing on earth but you, right? We, the song that says we just keep our eyes on Jesus and this world starts to fade away. My flesh and my heart fell, he says, but God is the strength of my heart. My portion forever. So maybe just go to this psalm. Get alone with God. Pray it back to God and say, make this a reality in my heart because honestly it's not right now. But this is how we draw near. This is how we labored into his rest. Get our focus on him. Pray to him. Open up his word before him. Ask him to rescue you in a prayer of lament. Those far from you will certainly perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. What's unique about this is the psalmist is speaking the truth. Those who are far from you ultimately will be judged and eternally condemned. But the reality, the New Testament context tells us that that's what we truly all deserve. Right? The righteousness of the psalmist is not his own righteousness. The righteousness that we are banking on in the hopes that God will see us as righteous and not the wicked is not our righteousness, but the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so the psalmist is saying, those are far from me, will be will perish, they will be destroyed, and that is true. But in the New Testament context, in the ambassadors that God has called us to in this world, in this dark world, we can say, those people out there that are wicked are going to be destroyed someday, or we, our hearts can break for them, because they are going to get what they truly deserve, but that's truly what we deserved. And they're no different than us. Because we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's no one righteous. No, not one. And that's why Jesus had to come. If we could earn our favor back to God or meritoriously through our self-righteousness, Jesus, the Son of God, the second person or our triune God, would not have to have taken on flesh and lived the law perfectly. That's something that we could not do to go to the cross to, to not only die and suffer the physical pain that we see in movies, but also take the wrath of God upon himself for our sin. Because God is holy and just and he must punish sin. If he is truly holy and just, he must punish it. He can't just wink at it. But he's made a way because Jesus stood in your place. He took your pain, your penalty for you so that we might be given his righteousness. And that's why we call it grace. That's why we sung about grace this morning. Because grace means it's unmerited. We didn't earn it. We can't earn it. It's unmerited. It's a gift given to you. Jesus died for you if you would just believe and trust in that alone. Scriptures declare over and over again, if you turn and abandon hope and all else and trust in Jesus' vicarious work, he will save you from your sins and he will make you a new creation in Christ and you are promised the eternal, eternal truth that there is a life, eternal life coming where he has rescued you and you will be able to dwell with him. And so, when I read a verse like this, a part of me says, yes, our holy God and just God will ultimately judge all wickedness and sin. No one's getting away with anything. We talked about that, but at the same time, my heart breaks. 
because truly that's what I deserve. And those people out there, those wicked people, that's the, this is their eternal, eternal truth. And unless God uses us as his ambassadors to go out and reach this world with the gospel, the good news, that is where they will be. Verse 28 in Psalm 73, but as for me, so he's purposing, right? He's, he's got his focus off of what's going on in this world. He's got his eyes focused on God now. And he says, but as for me, I'm going to purpose to do this. And so I ask you this morning, will you purpose to do this? God's presence is my good. And I have made the Lord God my refuge. Your God is your refuge in this time of your life. Any time in your life. And he becomes so overwhelmed with what God has done. Eternally, in the eternal perspective. He's so overwhelmed with it, he's not just going to go home and just say, God's so good. And talk to himself and say, God's so good. No, he, he's so overcome with what God has done, he can't help but speak about God's goodness to him. I've made the Lord God my refuge so I can tell about all you do. God is so good. He's overcome with God's goodness and his love extended to him that he can't help but tell people about the goodness of God. We have the good news, church. This lost, dark, dying world needs Jesus and we are his ambassadors and it's not until you become so overwhelmed with God's goodness towards you that you can't help but speak about that to others and say I have some good news I know life seems very vain and foolish and things just seem to be falling apart but I have good news let me tell you about Jesus and what he's done for me that is God, God is calling to us. So we close here for all have sinned, right? Ecclesiastes 17, 7, 19, and 20. Wisdom makes the wise person stronger than ten rulers of a city. And there is certainly no one righteous on earth who does good and never sins. Your Bible might have that as a quote. Solomon's already spoke this, verse 20. There, both of them actually. There is certainly no one righteous on earth who does good and never sins. Solomon's uh, pulling this from his temple prayer of dedication, the prayer of dedication for the temple. Right? Solomon was charged to build the temple in Jerusalem. And after it was done, Solomon got up and prayed a prayer in First Kings chapter 8 over the temple. And this was part of his prayer. And so he's quoting what he's already prayed in the temple dedication. But if you read that verse, you might see that as a very strikingly similar or a, a recognizable verse because Paul also uses it in the New Testament. You see how what God has done in his word? He takes writings from the Old Testament and takes the new, and they're perfectly dovetailed together. And Paul's demonstration to demonstrate to the people in his letter to Romans how God, there is no one righteous, no, not one. Right? We live in a culture who says, if I do good enough, if I work hard enough, right, then God will, will reward me. That's traditional wisdom. But that's not the case. And Paul writes in Romans 3, and he, he lays out a very, very good argument as to why we cannot rely on our faith or our righteousness, our self-righteousness. And he uses, in Romans chapter 3, uh, verse 
10, and he, this is starts the very long list of Old Testament passages that Paul uses to demonstrate to his, belie- to the, his readers how God has always demonstrated to us that we will never measure up to the holiness of God in and of ourselves. And so Paul begins that with Romans 3.10, there is no one righteous, not even one. He's quoting Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 8, and he'll go on to list more. And that's the bad news, right? That's the bad news that we all have to be faced with. That's the reality of this world. That traditional wisdom will not merit us favor or an eternity in heaven with God. No matter how many good works you think you might have, God says your, your works are as filthy rags. And that's some pretty bad news because it means we can't do anything to save ourselves. But praise God, there's good news. And Paul would go on in Romans 3.21 to declare... Now that he's given us the bad news, now that we have the, the bad news. This is, again, I'm going over this. I know people say, well, you, t- you touch on this every week. Well, I'm hoping that I will say it so much that you'll be able to speak of it yourselves. People need to understand they need Jesus, but they, they need to know the bad news first. They need to know why. Apart from Jesus, they have no hope. And then you can give them the good news. I love giving them the good news. But if I go straight there, then why should they? Well, okay, what? No, the bad news is, is they are separated from God. There's nothing they can do to earn it. But the good news is, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of, the righteousness of God has been revealed. Attested by the law and the prophets. He's pointing back to the Old Testament. Saying, from the very beginning, this has been God's purpose. Through the law and the prophets, Paul writes in Galatians, demonstrates our need for a Savior. Because we cannot keep the law. And the prophets declared that Jesus would come to rescue us from the violation of God's law. The righteousness of God is through faith. Not your works. Not a membership in a church. Not baptism or Anything that you can think of, it is through what? Through faith, trust, and belief in Jesus Christ alone. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to who? To all who believe. Jew, Gentile, Scythian, doesn't matter. We're all image bearers of God, and He's come to rescue a people from all nations through faith. Placing our trust in Christ alone to all who, how do we place our faith in Christ to believe? Trust in what Jesus has done alone. There's no distinction. Rich, poor, wicked, righteous, all need Jesus Christ. All need the salvation that is brought through placing your faith and believing that Christ alone has made a way for you to be rescued from what you truly deserve. Because Paul says in Romans 3.23 again, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but they are justified freely, unmerited. Isn't that good news? Does that make you smile inside? That you don't have to worry about if you've done enough to appease your God that he might let you in the day that you die. That you can rest in the knowledge and knowing that Jesus has done it. Jesus on the cross said, It is finished, paid in full. That's some good news. 
You see, our focuses are now what God is doing in this world and not what this world is doing in the wicked ways. That's how we are delivered. That's how we draw near. We are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. I pray that's good news for you this morning. And let us purpose as this Asaph did. But as for me, God's presence is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge. So I can tell all about, or tell all about all that you do. Let us purpose to enter into God's rest and presence, walk in fear of him, walk in humility towards him, keep our focus on what he's doing in this world and not what this world is doing around us. And as you do so, may you become so overwhelmed with the goodness and love of God that you can't help but tell other people about his sacrificial love demonstrated in Christ Jesus. If that's not you this morning, I pray that today would be the day that you would abandon hope in all else, that you would put your complete trust and faith in the accomplished, vicarious work of Jesus Christ alone. Jesus made it abundantly clear. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. He even said in John chapter John that he, he's the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. Will you turn from your self-righteous ways? Will you place your faith in Christ alone so that you too can be added to the many in this room who can testify of the goodness and love of God demonstrated in the gospel? You don't have to become a member. You don't have to get baptized. Cry out to God. Save me from my sin. Believe. I want to believe in what God Jesus has done. Scriptures say, if you will confess with your mouth, declare it, believe it in your heart, God will save you. Trust Him. I testify that He who promised is faithful. He will save you. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this time. Thank You for this opportunity to be reminded of Your goodness and Your love extended to us, Lord. We see that you, your righteousness and your holiness will be one day vindicated for the wicked, but at the same time, our hearts break because we know that's what we truly deserve. <laughs> but yet you've rescued us. You've saved us from what you truly deserve, and we desire, God, that you would use this small church as a light, as a bright light of your good news that you are saving a people through the gospel. God, would you use us would you use us individually? Would you allow us, Lord, give us the strength and the endurance and the, the boldness to, to lean into you and then proclaim your goodness to others around us, that your spirit would work through us, God. Help us to walk wisely. Help us not to depend on our own self-righteousness or be live in a foolish way that would bring dishonor to you, but God, help us to walk in this world that would reflect your righteousness and your goodness to those around you, that others may come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. We ask it in his name and for his glory. Amen.